2 Corinthians chapter 5. You know, I don't know how they did it 100 years ago. You know, I mean, 100 years ago, they didn't even have these lamps, you know. And if they did something at night, it was done by, like, fire, you know. They, they, you, you put something, you put oil in a bowl, and you, you put some kind of cloth in it, and you put it on fire. And that's what people read to. I don't know, but you, my, my eyes aren't that good anyways. I mean, today we have, I have backlighting on everything, right? That's always nice. I have lights that shine at my face so that I can see what I'm reading. But, I, you know, and I'm, I'm looking around, and I'm so thankful for those of you who, um, who open up your old faithful, which, by the way, I'm huge to bring on trains because I like people to know I'm not just staring at my phone like everyone else. But, uh, you know, anyways, hats off to you if you can read that. Uh, Second Corinthians, I want to back up, and I want to back up to chapter 4, verse 7, so we can get a little bit of a reference here, and then we'll move forward from there. Second Corinthians 4, verse 7 says this. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened and not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, We are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, very well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, 
we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, we lay before you ourselves and this text and pray for the perfect merger. Pray, Lord, that you would speak now in perfect length and depth that every one of us will hear you. Speak fluent us individually that we hear you speak to our need and corporately that we as a family can enjoy that sense of unity that only you, Jesus, can bring. So, Lord, color in the black and white. May we have so much fun in your word. Lord, captivate us and draw us into it. And Lord, may we walk out of here changed, clearer seeing things as you do. Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because, the, because I say so or because I have a mic strapped to my face. But rather, search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Perhaps some of you have heard the story. A girl in our fellowship has a friend. This friend has a friend that's going to China. As the friend's friend who is going to China is heading to China, she leaves with her friend, her dog. She leaves her dog because she can't take her dog to China. That would not be wise on a handful of levels. The last thing she says to her friend before leaving for China is, whatever you do, don't kill my dog. That's what kind of friend is that? Lo and behold, the girl leaves for China, leaves the dog with her very young friend. Four days later, the dog dies. This is a true story. There's more. Apparently, the dog had choked on something. I really don't know the full story, but it's... I'm not testifying in a court of law over it. I really don't know the cause of death. This poor young girl is trying to figure out what to do. Because after all, how was she going to tell her friend? The last thing her friend said was, whatever you do, don't kill my dog. So she says, I know what I'll do. I'll take the dog and I'll bury it. Somewhere far away and tell her that the dog ran away. I, I, I don't think I could make up this story. So the girl takes this dog, which has now passed away, puts it in a bin liner, puts it in a suitcase. Because she doesn't want to bury the dog in front of her own house. Now, she's apparently unaware of the fact that to bury anything in a public park is a crime. But nonetheless... I don't know the girl personally, so I think I'm a little safe from testifying, nonetheless. So she takes the dog, puts it in a bin liner, puts the, the bin liner in a, in a uh, suitcase, and heads to the underground. Because after all, how else is she going to get a dog to the other side of London so she can bury it in a park somewhere that she's never been? Now the dog's a little heavy, and so that's a bit of a struggle for her. She's carrying a dead dog in a bin liner, in a suitcase, onto the uh, underground, and she gets somewhere to the other side. And as the doors open, the girl is now grabbing the suitcase, and she's struggling because it's a little heavy. 
a kind gentleman is standing next to her, recognizing that they're going to need to get off fairly quickly. So gently and kindly, he turns to her and says, what's in the suitcase that it's so heavy? Now, she's scrambling to come up with an answer, as one would imagine, because after all, what do you tell the guy? It's a dog that I killed that I'm going to bury in a public park because my friend's in China. Well, she's not going to do that. So she's scrambling for an answer, and she just tries to come up with heavy things. Well, my books and my, my, my computer, my laptop, and my iPad, and, you know, and other heavy things. And as she reaches over to get the other bag, which maybe I'll assume has a shovel in it, as she turns around, the man has grabbed the suitcase, and he is running because he had nicked the suitcase. He had stolen the suitcase, thinking there were books, an iPad, and a laptop in there. Oh, the spoils of war. Now, if you know anything, if this man has any history stealing anything, you probably know you don't even go near the items for a couple days because you don't want to turn them on because they send off signals and so forth. So what if it be the case? There's a man who's got a suitcase in his room and it's starting to stink. And you know, most iPads don't smell like that. And he's just waiting for that day. And one day he's going to open that thing up and there is a dead dog. And that is all of his effort for stealing this thing. Why in the world do I tell you this? Other than it is a great story, let's be honest. Is that is the problem with our text. Is that Paul is telling us that there is an inner man in every one of you. Now I don't mean that like male, like Mary, inside you is a man. What I'm saying is that inside every one of us is the you that's really you, that's eternal. Outside right now is a shell. It is a tent. It is a dwelling place, but it is not your permanent dwelling place. And Paul ended the last chapter by telling us that everything you can touch and see here is going to die. It's going to expire. It is going to end. I can't see the surely that lasts forever. It's tucked neatly inside the surely that's dwelling. Shirley's tent, if you will. But one day, we'll be hanging out forever. And this pew, that hoodie, though it's lovely, that mustache, though it's very nice, Jay. Aren't you glad? Never mind. Um, That beanie, that's lovely. Even the Bible you carry. Though the Word of God endures forever, the Bible you're carrying will not. Everything. And we are reminded of that every year as the new iPhone comes out. We're reminded that every spring when Gap says, pink, it's the new black. And then it's orange, it's the new pink. And then it's neon it's the new wow and then it's pastels it's the new neon and you get it because after all if they said well last year's stuff is good well then you wouldn't buy their stuff we're aware of that and the bands that seemed eternally dominating people will sooner or later say well who are they dare i say big time rush 
You know who laughs? My parents. Because parents knew the children were like, I'll die for them. And now they're like, who? Someday that will be the case with One Direction, believe it or not. And it's being recorded. You can quote me on it. Someday, all those things that seem someday, even the Marvel films will seem old. I know I've woken you up now. I've got your attention, don't I? A guy can only turn green so long. And what Paul is challenging us, and, and it really is my prayer, that we would have Paul's experience without having Paul's experience. You see, somewhere down the line, it seems like Paul got a view of eternity. Now, the easiest way, if you're looking at the book of of Acts, the easiest way to assume it happened, to be honest, is when Paul got stoned when he was actually in the southern central area of Turkey. They stoned him, left him for dead. Lystra Derby. The disciples gather around him. He gets up, goes back in the city, gets Barnabas, and off they go. It's his first mission trip. But somewhere in it, and Paul will tell us this, by the way, as we dig into 2 Corinthians, that Paul got a vision of, of, of heaven. And it seemed like everything changed. Because from that point on, he looked at everything and he saw the temporariness and the things that were once huge ambitions even for him. And he kind of looked and went, hmm, it's just not the same anymore. But you know that if you've given your life to Christ, even things that seem so fun, do you remember when you like couldn't wait for something and you waited weeks for it, but like inside you're like, oh, I just can't wait for it, and then you got there and then it was over so quickly, it was like the anticipation was infinitely longer than the experience? It's kind of like a ride at Disneyland. Like you're, you wait in line for like six hours, and then you finally get there and then the ride's over in 35 seconds. But apparently that's part of the experience. Heat stroke. Smelly people, cranky people in line, babies who cry, and it's unbelievable how much endurance they have. And Paul wants to give us that vision. I'd like for none of you to actually be stoned with stones or stoned with anything, to be honest, and then left for dead. And then, But I would love for us all, if, if we could be dragged out of this and see for just a moment what eternity looks like. I mean, I'm not just talking about we peek in Revelation and we see the, the throne and we see all the things and everything's positioned around the throne. We, see the, we, the, we read the end of the book and we know that it ends simply with us being with him. Everything else is sort of inconsequential in comparison. And I, and I look at all of that. But the problem is that I'm really stuck. I'm so stuck. It's like I'm addicted to the temporary. It's like such a crazy thing. It's like I, I have the hardest time really seeing things the way I'm supposed to. And maybe because everything just, it's just so easy to sit back and stare at what's obvious. But this is what Paul says in the first verse. Look at it with me. He says, because, poor means because, because we know that if our earthly house, is, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God. Now, going back, if you look again, 
This is what he said about his condition. He's hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, always caring about in his body the dying of the Lord Jesus, always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. Death was working in him, and even though the outward man is perishing, he called it a light affliction for a moment. And if what we're looking at, if the church gets caught in the temporary, we suck. There's no other way to put it. We're going to suck from this world. We're going to try to try to compare to the world. We're going to try to make everything like, oh, how's your Christian music? How does it compare to the world's music? How's it? Well, and then we're going to look at it from every perspective except for the only one that matters, and that's the eternal. And so what will happen is we'll have very, very artistic nothing to offer. Oh, we'll have great camera angles, and we'll have very artistic things and things so flower spoken with such ornamentation, but really we've decorated. It's one of those boxes that when you finally get it open after 15 boxes in a box kind of thing, like Matryoshka gift, and by the time you get to the end, there's nothing in there, and everyone's laughing. You're like, this isn't funny. I, I worked really hard to get these things open, and look at what we got. Nothing. That should never be that way among the church, and it should never be that way among those that belong to it, because the church is people. We're aware of that. And so, He starts telling us, though, this is Paul's experience, those that are Paul's opponents were very much driven by what they see. And they were totally the, you tell God, this is what you want. It's the car, it's the house, it's the health, it's the wealth, it's the whatever. And you start adding zeros to your bank account and God's just going to back them up. Sure, I'd say the same thing, just add the zeros on the front, not the right-hand side. And if you think the best thing that God has to give you is money, then what happens when you die? That everything God has to offer you is over? What kind of God are you serving? On the other side of it, this is what Paul says. Yet, he's not crushed, nor in despair, not forsaken, nor destroyed, but that the life of Jesus may be manifest in his body, that the life of Jesus may be manifest in his mortal flesh, life in them because of this. And he says that Jesus, who, God, who will raise up with us, raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you, therefore we don't lose heart. Because though the inward man is the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. Because he's working a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory, even in these temporary hard times that are, by the way, very tangible. You can really feel them. If Lucas had a tumor attached to his liver. And it was really messing with him, as one would imagine a tumor would. It was not invasive. It hung on the side of it, but it really made things really rough for him. And he went into the knife. They would, of course, assumedly knock him out. He's in a first world country. They would cut him open. They would remove that tumor And then they would seal up all of the things if they do it right and prayerfully not leave a watch or a scalpel or anything else in there. Lucas, really, with all honesty, will go to sleep and he'll wake up with a scar and he'll be sore. That's his experience at this point. Would you agree? He will wake up. Sitting up will be difficult. Going to the toilet will be difficult. He will not be popping crunches or be doing sit-ups or anything for quite a while. Though he can't see what they've done inside, he can feel the pain 
that was the result of that surgery. And for every trial that you and I will experience, we will physically feel its pain, even if we can't see the surgery God is performing while it's happening. And so Paul tells us here, we need to start looking with faith. But to look with faith is to see things that other people cannot see, and they will say you're seeing things. And I do hope you are. You are seeing a hope where no one else would. You're seeing a way out of no way. You're seeing a reason to rest at night. And though the circumstances may look bleak, or the people may be whatever, or the situation looks like it doesn't add up in the math, God has never been restricted by what we see. And if there's one thing we can learn in Scripture is the way we see things is just not the way God does. Back in Genesis chapter 3, God told Adam in verse 19, In the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you shall return. God made clear to Adam that the tent he was living in was not permanent. Jesus tells us a parable in both Matthew and in Luke, Matthew 12:44, Luke 11:24, about a spirit cast from a human being. When someone asks me, "Do I believe in demon possession?" I say, "How can I not believe in something that's clear in scripture?" Do I believe that every person who has a cold has a demon? No, I don't. That's also not in Scripture. As other crazy things that people try to make up. But being around Camden, I've also learned that never in Scripture has it ever been a concern among the believer. You know, if a person comes at you and they're crazy, and you say, in the name of Jesus Christ, Satan, leave. And he wasn't possessed. What difference is it going to make? He's already acting crazy before that. But I can tell you with circumstances where I've seen someone act totally just. In ways that you would not prefer anyone to act. And to say, in the name of Jesus Christ, you're out of here. And watch them sit. But then immediately want to tell them about Jesus because of what Jesus tells us here in, in Matthew and in Luke. When he says, when a spirit is driven from a human being, he says, he searches dry places for a place to rest. And finally he says, I will return to my house for which I came. Interesting that a demon saw a human being as his house. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent. Peter speaking of his own body. Peter understood. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we read that Jesus himself, as the Word of God, that the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there literally means to pitch a tent. Jesus went camping. And the campground was earth. The tent you live in now is not your permanent house. But if you think it is, you will be stuck holding the handle of a dead dog. Because what you'll have in the end will be nothing like you thought you would. Listen. The building you are right now is intentional by God. And it's intentionally temporary. But you need to know this. 1 Corinthians 3.9 tells us we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. What building is it? 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 6.19 tell us, Do you not know that you are the temple of God? God's temple is a tent. Because what makes a building a temple? Who lives there? That's the point. Jesus had said the same thing about himself. If you remember in John chapter 2, clearing the temple, and they're saying, well, what sign will you give? And he says, I'll tear it on this temple and raise it up in three days. And they say, it's, there's, it's impossible. It's 40, 50, 46 years. We haven't been able to, 52 years, we haven't been able to, 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 to finish this temple. And Jesus says we, he spoke of his own body. So I'd like you to think of it this way for a moment. We're camping. How many of you here like camping? Just curious with a show of hands. Some of you, so-so. Okay. Just want to know who to hang out with and who not to. That's great. That's great. Uh, I married a girl from Southern California. Camping for her is a uh, lower star hotel. Something rustic where you don't get room service. Camping, she, you know, I, 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 I see it's very convenient for me to use that, right? To say she just can't understand why you would pay money to lose all of your conveniences and have to poop in the woods. That just, you know, that's kind of her mindset, which, you know, conveniently then allows me to be like, yeah, well, you know, I'm just being with my wife. <laughs> but if you have a nice house and you go camping, there is, I'll grant you this, it's beautiful. Thousand Star Hotel freezing, bugs. It's beautiful. I know there's more to it than that, but it's beautiful. But sooner or later, you get hungry to go home for your bed. At least, I think so. And if that be the case, what if you've never been there? So let's put it into this way. Allie is going to make a house going to make a house for the Giorgio family. The Giorgio family wants a beautiful Greek house. Pillars, statues, fountains, good Greek house. Something that looks like the Parthenon. And Ali starts to get to work on it. But the Georgios really have no other place to live. So there's some form of allotment that happens where what Allie allows is for <coughs> excuse me, Mary and Chris and the kids 
not simulate, to camp in the yard while the house is being built. So they get to see little traces of the house as it's being built. They see things as they're coming about. And like anything that, you know, that they watch that Ali's made, they look and they think, ah, that is clearly a symbol of the Illuminati. Just kidding. Anyways, uh, no, actually, actually, you know, you, ask, you can ask Allie about that later. Mary knows that though she sees the, the house from the outside, she knows as, as she watches them carry in this beautiful big mattress, and it's, you know, with all of the things that come with it to help with someone's back and such. And she says, oh, I can't wait to lay on that. And she sees all of these comforts. And she says, oh, indoor plumbing, won't that be great, kids? And oh, my goodness, you know, central heating. And all of this. And she sees all of these things being put into this house. It makes her hungrier and hungrier to get in. And though camping's not, it, it could be worse. You could be homeless. She has a home. She's seeing bits of it, but she's still camping. But I guarantee you there will be a day as that tent gets older and starts to tear, starts to let in a little bit more of the weather, that she will be all the more excited about the house. The danger is just wanting to get out of the tent, but not wanting to get into the house. And that's the way we play it as Christians to an unbelieving world. Oh, this thing's breaking down. Oh, I can't wait to get out of this earth. As if the greatest thing will be what we leave instead of where we go. If that's the case, we sound like a suicide cult. I'm just being honest. But this is what God promises. That there is something beyond that. Go back for a minute to 1 Corinthians. If you're in your Bibles or flipping your apps to 1 Corinthians 15 and go to verse 35. This has become, of course, the reason why some groups do not cremate. Because they think the dead in Christ are going to be raised. You're going to need the body. I tell you what. I've told my family, cremate me and flush me down the toilet. That's what this flesh is good for. I don't want it to be like, I would hate to think God would raise us up. Let's say that all of a sudden, God forbid, Deborah passes away. And the Lord comes back the next day and the dead in Christ rise first and she's got like worms sticking out of her eye sockets. How fun? No, that doesn't sound like a really awesome thing. Do you think so? But some were saying that there's no such thing as a resurrection of the dead. Paul says, and I love this, it's almost like I hear Paul as if he's from New Jersey. In this. What are you, stupid? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. If there's no resurrection, then Jesus didn't resurrect. And if Jesus didn't resurrect, we are the stupidest religion on the planet. He calls us the most pitiful people. You might as well mean it's like we're stopping sinning because we're really seeking to please somebody that's dead. And if people don't believe Jesus is risen from the dead, could you see why they have a right to think the same? 
Oh, how pitiful. We're going to go and we're going to go clubbing. We're going to go raving. We're going to do a bunch of ecstasy. Hopefully we'll live through the night. Hopefully my friend won't throw up on my favorite clothes. And I'll wake up in the morning, hopefully someplace where I can find my way home and I'm not arrested. What a great night. Oh, you're going to a Bible study, you pitiful soul. Really? So Paul says, well, oh, someone's going to say, well, have to get a rise. What kind of body did they get? Ugh. Verse 35. But someone will say, how were the dead raised up? With what body do they come? Paul says, fool, big fool, foolish one. What you sow is not made alive until it dies. Listen to it again. What you sow is not made alive until it dies. Everything about a Christian is about the resurrection. because, But you can't have a resurrection without a death. I want a resurrected personality. But that means my old one's got to die. I want a resurrected value system. But that means my old one's got to die. I want a resurrected heart. A resurrected mind. But that means the old one's got to die. Oh, can't I just get the new without the old? God says, no, there's not room for both. You're not, a, you're not an earthworm. You only get one heart. What you sow, you do not sow that body that will be, but mere grain perhaps or some other grain. God gives it a body as he pleases. And to each seed its own body. When you plant a grape seed, it doesn't bear forth a bunch of grape seeds. It produces a vine. It comes with a body very different from what was planted. And when we get planted, this tent gets planted. Praise the Lord for what he has prepared for me. It's not the same. So let me ask you something. If you could change one thing about your body, what would it be? Younger, less wrinkled, thinner, taller, more hair, less hair. You pick the spots. Bigger, smaller nose, bigger, smaller muscles. Would you choose body part? Would you never get sick? If you could change one thing, what would it be? Because according to this, there are three major changes that happen. He doesn't speak about what size our nose is or whether we're going to be little naked babies playing harps. He doesn't speak of any of that. He doesn't speak of our size. He doesn't speak of our hair color or existence or not of it. Just look at not all flesh is the same. There's the flesh. There's one kind of flesh of men and there's another of animals. Notice he doesn't say there's different flesh of men. We all have the same amount of melanin. Some of you just are more spend thrifty and some of us, some are more spend quick with it or whatever. There's another flesh of animals, there's another fish, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon. I like that. The glory of the sun emanates light, the glory of the moon reflects it. The glory of the body that you have right now reflects the glory of the one that will come. That's the good news. It says one for the stars, and one star differs even from another star in its glory. There is a uniqueness to each of those, by the way, is the idea. And here are three major things. Listen. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. Undecaying. Or, by the way, the same way that's used of genuine. 
The one we're going to get cannot decay. The one we get will never fall apart. It will not be subject to any form of pollution. Now, I'm not talking about you'll eat food and you'll get indigestion. What I'm saying is sin won't exist to even be a problem, nor its results. That's what I want more than anything, I'll be honest. I'll take a fat, bald guy that loves the Lord and never sins over a guy that looks like the physique of Ken or whatever with a Barbie. And then after all of that, slave to sin. Just recently, I've had this experience. Uriah actually on the cusp of it with me. Because I had had some form of horrible, I don't know, something in my lungs or something a couple months back. And I wound up at a handful of doctors and they gave me a whole bunch of things. And they gave me something to take for a really long time. It was sort of like a, an allergy type of thing for my autoimmune. The crazy thing, though, is what I started to notice is that, oh, I, it, was, it was true. My nose wasn't running. I was breathing very clearly. It was all that. But I was cranky. I was like, I was like, inside it was like, you ever, like, you ever breathe in smoke and you feel it? Like, I feel like I had that in my spirit. Like, I'd wake up, I don't I don't know. I'm like, finally, I'm like, I'd rather be a, a nice guy with a runny nose than a guy that's like cranky and nasty and dopey and spacey all the time that has to figure out how to tie his shoes again. But the only reason I tell you that is because what the Bible says is the body we're going to get will not be subject to sin. And that alone makes it worth it. I don't care what it looks like. If we look like the Michelin Tire Man or the Stay Plus Marshmallow Boy, or whether we look like, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. If we all look like llamas, it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter if we didn't have, if we weren't subject to sin. Verse 43 says, It's sown in dishonor and it's raised in glory. The word that dokes up means dignity, honor, light emanating. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power, dunamis. That's what he tells us is the difference. The new body, when we cash this one in, the new one will be incorruptible, glorious, and powerful. I think that's pretty darn cool. It's so natural, it's raised spiritual. There's a natural and there's a spiritual body, just like Adam, it tells us. There's one that reflects the man of earth, and there's another one that reflects the heavenly man. That's what it tells us in verse 48. We bear the image now of the earthly man. Soon it will be of the heavenly man. He tells us in verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. In other words, it isn't like God's going to slap a coat of paint on the one you've got. He's going to give you a whole brand new one. Aren't you thankful? Some of you are like, I kind of like myself. Well, hang around, wait another 20 years. Tell me, then let's talk. And then he says this in verse 51. Behold, that means stop everything and do this with me. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I actually took that verse when Shantae was born and put it up on the nursery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. That's the point. Back in our verses here now in 2 Corinthians, and they'll pick up now. It tells us that this earthly body is has an expiration date. Now, some of us, maybe we are 
a little bit more keenly aware of it than others. But the bottom line is none of us are sure which is the next one that's going home. I'd love to think that we will all be till the Lord's return. But I'll be honest. None of us know. I can see what the psalmist like Asaph would say, teach us to number our days, that we would know how frail we are, that we would gain a heart of wisdom. So look at, in this we groan. Now, as we get older, that becomes a little more natural, doesn't it? Some of you who are advancing with me. We groan. At first, it's getting up. Like, you know, you sit and then you're like, all right, you kind of do that. It's like, I'm not looking. I'm just coincidentally looking in any direction. And then sooner or later, it becomes sitting down. And you're like, all right, all right, all right. And after a while, you can groan without even getting up or sitting down. But it isn't that we just groan because the body seems like it doesn't want to do what it used to do. I remember the first time my slam dunk became a layup. You don't know what that means. That was a time when I could lift my hand above the rim of a basketball uh, net and then be able to take that ball and drive it deep into the net. And I did everything with, I thought, the same amount of effort, same amount of everything, and I went up, and that, it's like somebody lifted the whole goal and took it another three feet away. I'm like, what? How did that get so far away? Now my shoes are far away from me. And I'm not that old. I'm telling myself, it's, and you know you're in trouble. I'm reading the Old Testament now for comfort. As I'm reading those guys, they live like hundreds of years. And I'm like, yeah, see, I'm young. But we groan. But this is what we groan. And please hear me. This is what he tells us. Desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, we groan being burdened, and not because we want to be unclothed, but rather further clothed. That is the point. And that becomes the testimony, beloved, that we need to bear, is that we should hunger to be with Christ. We should crave that day when we stand before Him and sin doesn't exist anymore. When we stand before Him and all there is is a heart that craves Him and clings to Him and says, there you are. All I really want is you and mean it. With every bit of us, with no competition, nothing distracting us, just us and Him. And at that point, everything else, let it burn. Because all I want there is Him and everyone I love. Nothing else is going to matter. It isn't like I'm like, ah, oh, dang it, if I'd only gotten another Jeep, what difference would it make? I can't drive to heaven with it anyway. In Romans 8.23, it says, Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. We ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for that adoption. It was a year putting in the applications, people coming to our house to make sure we weren't any more psychotic than anyone else they knew. Testing us, checking us, reading all of our files and our bank files and all of our other things, all of our personal documents and everything that was necessary so that a person in the civil affairs office in, in China could ultimately say that child. But even after they sent us the picture, that was the hardest time. 
Suzanne, we waited. You have to get a travel permission from the government. And it shows up by mail. And you can't make them email it or anything else. And they, they just really want you to know they're in control as a country. Suzanne would go to the mailbox every day and come back and say, I feel like I just had a miscarriage because it wasn't there. Yeah, there was drama in our house. Those of you who have the CD, Project 1-1, if you don't, you, you can have it. It's, it's just solo piano music, just instrumental music, each song sort of chronicling a, se- a, a one point that season of adoption, the steps that were there. And one song is called, O Mailbox, My Bane. And I was like, oh no, it's another day where you go to the mailbox and just hope it's there. But man, I can tell you what. Wouldn't you be concerned if she wasn't like that? She'd go to the mailbox and I'm like, oh, who cares? We'll go there whenever. Man, Shante would push an empty swing and say, I'm pushing Ruthie. At our kitchen table, there was a chair nobody else could sit in. That's Ruthie. Don't sit on Ruthie. We hadn't gotten her yet, but thanks, Shanti. was just practicing. But can I confess to you? Something must be really wrong with me. I'm sincere. I mean, I'm being sincere. Because having Ruthie is one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me. But Jesus is even more so. Why am I not like that about his return? Why don't I go, oh, Lord, maybe today? Wouldn't that be great? And that's what Paul says in the Romans. He says, man, we just can't wait for that day of adoption. The only difference is we're actually the child, not the adopting parent. She was too young to know. She was 13 months when we got her. But what if she were older and she got the picture of us? Maybe that would have frightened her and she could have waited. I don't know. But for some of those older children, they send videos and all that. And you see the stories and you watch these children, beloved, and you watch them. And they're just like, they're dad the moment they see their parents now, that they're adopting parents in a video. And they're like, that's just my dad now. I just can't wait to get home to a home I've never been. But I've seen videos. I read their letters. And they can't wait. They live on every letter. They live on every video. We've been at the the orphanages where you've watched these children. And you watch them. And it's like, man, they, they just go mental when they get a letter. And I've got 66 of them at my disposal. At any given time, I can open up and read And yet I can wake up and, and it, I'll get to it. But it isn't like the, the, it's like I just can't wait to read about my daddy that's going to get me one of these days. Where's that groaning at? Have I gotten too comfortable in my campground? What's wrong with me? Listen, beloved. God has a dress code. He has a dress code for this earth and he has a dress code that's an ultimate one. But it is not the dress code man's going to impose because man again looks at the outward appearance. The dress code is to be clothed in Christ. To be clothed in love. 
And I do believe every Christian, that should be our dress code. That's the dress code. But there is a permanent dress. We know in regards to the parable of the man who is the king who has the, the wedding feast for his son. Do you remember that? And he invites everyone and they come and they find a guy without wedding clothes. And he's like, friend, why are you here? And he casts him out. And it was because we don't understand the culture, we kind of look and go, wow, that's cruel. The guy couldn't afford any clothing and he kicked him out. But understand, and some, we get a little bit of that in our own culture, but a man who held the, the wedding feast, he was responsible to clothe every man who came. And the fact that it tells us it was a king who had it, who had the party, he knew how to clothe every person who could come. So to find somebody without wedding clothes is somebody openly in protest to the marriage. This was, this was a man offered clothes and he said no. No, I don't want that. Why would I want that? That would have me in being, want the marriage. And he goes, that's the point. That's the point. I can't wait for my wedding clothes. They're incorruptible, glorious, undefiled, and full of power. And he tells us here, it's not that we don't want to be, it's not that the desire is to just get these clothes off. It isn't that we just desire to get out of this tent. Yeah, this tent's starting to leak. This tent's starting to tear. This tent doesn't have the same luster it did when it started out. I'll grant you that. But it isn't like I just want to leave this tent and be homeless. I'm watching God, as Jesus told me. He's preparing a place for me because in his Father's house there are many mansions or many dwellings of which one has my name. It's bespoke to me. Big grand piano in there. Lots of great instruments and no neighbors to complain that will have a problem. All of my neighbors are Mediterranean and great cooks. And like to share. And have barbecue. And he's preparing it for me. And here I am in the campground watching that. Every time I open up the pages, I watch the house a little bit more built. And as I see it a little bit more built, I look and I think, oh, I can't wait to move into that place. When was the last time any of us sat down with an unbeliever and told him about that? Are we afraid they'll think we're crazy? Can I just fill you in on something they probably already do anyway? We might as well at least give them a good reason. Give them good information to hold on to. You could still get truth from crazy people. You've heard that. Verse 5 says, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. How do I know for sure? Back to our Giorgio Alley metaphor, our parable. Ali, though the architect, has a building crew. And the man that is the foreman of the house, that is building the house, decides to have his son come and watch over their tent. He has a personal garden tent. Or better yet, the foreman happens to be a direct relative or the father of her husband, Chris. And the fact that Chris is there is a constant reminder that this house will get finished. See, what Jesus did through his spirit is he came and he moved into your tent with you. That's the beauty here. You're like, God, do you know how rough it is to live on this campground? And Jesus is like, you know what? Funny you should say that. I actually went, in, I, I went camping in your campground for a while. 
And people came and they beat up and they tore up and they destroyed the tent to the best of their ability. They tore that thing apart to where you could not identify it as a tent anymore, but they could not kill the one who lived inside of it. That was completely undefeatable. And now I want to come and live in your tent with you. How could we not feel victorious when that's who lives in the tent with us? Because all of that to remind you that there's a house coming, beloved. And that house that's coming is so beautiful and so right. Because you know in the end of it all, what you're going to get is me, the Lord speaking. So verse 6 says, We are confident knowing that while we are at home in this body right now, we don't get that yet. We're absent from the Lord. That doesn't mean we don't enjoy His presence. That does mean we don't get what we ultimately crave, which is to, to meet Him face to face and be like Him. For we walk by faith, not by sight. But we're confident of this. Listen, please hear me in this. Rather to be absent from the body, be present with the Lord. There's no middle ground, by the way. There's no holding place. You are either home in this body and away from the Lord, and his, you know, except for the sort of His presence as He's here, or you're absent of this body and you're present with the Lord. There's no like purgatory. There's no like place that's like a pit stop or some place where you have to wait for somebody to light a handful of candles and give money to a church. Aren't you thankful? My family wouldn't have the money or the candles to do it. Psalm 17, verse 15 says, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. And I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. What to say, that's when I'll be finally satisfied. It's when I wake up and I see you face to face. Psalm 73, 23 says, Nevertheless, you are continually with me, or I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. In Revelation 7, we are told this, that we'll never hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. Can you imagine never being hungry, never being thirsty? The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. That doesn't mean it'll be cold. It means we'll never have heat stroke. We'll never have one of those moments where we've been in a bus or a train and you're like, I have to stand and I really don't want to stand right now. You have those moments, remember those? And it seems like everybody's emanating heat on you. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now please understand, only God in His math can have a one-on-one -on -one and wipe away your tears. It's a very intimate and tender moment. Would you agree? It isn't like God's just so big He's going to go, all right, everybody, line up. They're all tearless. God is a one-on-one -on -one specifically for you all the tears that you've ever cried that he's kept in a bottle and now will wipe away the rest in Revelation 22 the end of the book where we win by the way in case you haven't read the end there shall be no more curse the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it the servants will serve him it tells us that though it has not been clearly shown what we will be or it has not been revealed what we shall be but we know this that when he is revealed we will be like him. We will see him as he is. 
Listen to this crazy statement. This is 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, in case you need to check up on me. Everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure. Do you realize? Hoping, living in the hope of that day when you see him and shed this tent makes you as pure as Christ. Is that a crazy thought? It is to me. So what's the end result of this? As, Paul, as Peter would say, by the way, in 2 Peter 3.11, if, since all of these things will be dissolved then, what manner of persons ought you to be with holy conduct and godliness? Well, it tells us here in verse 9 as we close this. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. That's my end desire here. If I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this beautiful Jesus who died on the cross for me and rose again, paid for my sins and offers me new life, a resurrected life for which then the old needs to die for that to happen, then I want to be his delight. I want, to, I want my actions to delight him. I'm his delight in the sense that I'm his. Even the father, for instance, who said of his own son before he began his public ministry or as he was beginning it, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Because he was his beloved son. But I want to please him in my actions. I want to please him in my thoughts. And in my priorities. And in the way that I treat you. And the way that I see you. And the way that I live. In my, in, in, in my dreams and ambitions. I want you to do the same with me. I would so love it. that we are so intimate with Christ that the moment we pass through that threshold of the temporary and we ditch this tent, it'll seem like a very small step. You're like, oh, there you are. That's what you look like. I knew you weren't like that surfer guy that I saw on those posters. So, beloved, I want to pray right now that somewhere this week, God will give you such a view of the eternal such a view of the home you have waiting for you that you will be able to be an ambassador in your campground. And you'll be bold. Me too, by the way. Bold about the fact that there is a day when this tent is is ditched and I get to stand before the Lord and I can't hasten that. It isn't like I'm going to throw myself in front of a train for that to happen. I want to live, and Paul would say this, he says that I know to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he says, because if I'm going to live and if that's what God wants, that just means more fruit to my account until the time that I stand before him. Work's not done yet, so I'm going to keep going until he takes me home. And when he takes me home, I'll say, I'll, I'll punch in my time card and say, that's it. Job's done. I would really hate to do that. Have you ever like worked at a place where you've like had to check out, but you weren't done, and you're like, dang it. And you wanted to get back the next day, even though because part of you was left there anyways because it just wasn't done. When you used to write symphonies, and I'd have to write a particular cadence or something, and, and we'd have all of it but this moment, and I, I was like, I couldn't even leave the room. Because even if I did, most of me was still there trying to work on it. I don't want you to live life like that now. So the Lord were to say, I'm coming back right now. And you're like, no, 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 I'm not done yet. 
The Lord knows when the time is supposed to be done. Wouldn't it be great if we were done when we were supposed to be done? Is that what he takes us? I just want to stand before him and go, all right, let's just enjoy eternity together now. Died on a cross so that all our sins could be paid if you accepted his gift. Rose again on the third day to give us a new life, a resurrected life, so that other things can die so that the new resurrected life could rise in its place. Are you letting him do that? You pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful text. Clearly, Lord, the tent that we live in right now is still a a temple. That's the crazy part. And your dress code is to drape us in a temple tent. But David understood that. Outside of his house was a tent that you dwelt in. And from the time in the the wilderness and exodus through this time until Solomon would build a house, there was a tent that you lived in yourself. And then came the house. And in the same way, we dwell in a tent. But there will be a house you're preparing for us that will not be subject to sin, that will not cave or even be tempted, but rather will just in utter love have nothing that keeps us, no history, no reluctance, nothing that keeps us just iffy about our intimacy with you. So I pray right now, Lord, for every brother and sister in here that we would be absolutely pleasing to you. As we are yours, we're pleasing to you. Now may it be that we live that way. Even as we groan for that final day of adoption when you come and we have our gotcha day, the day when you come and get us. And until then, Lord, And if I were in that orphanage and I heard that you were open to adopt everyone in the orphanage, if I really loved them, I'd want them to come with me. Make me bold in the orphanage you've put me in. May I shine in the campground you've placed me in. All well aware that it is a tent that I live in and it is a campground I dwell in and both have an expiration date. Jesus, thank you for tenting in human flesh. Being tempted in every way yet without sin and then paying the price for all of our sins on the cross. Thank you for dying just like Scripture would promise. Raising from the dead just like Scripture promised. And offering me a resurrected life. And and Lord, if there be any in this room or within the sound of this voice who have not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, Father, if there be any, by the power of your Holy Spirit, show them the necessity to make that choice. And if that's you tonight, My prayer is as you hear this prayer, your heart will knit itself with the words and in the end, give a confident, resounding amen. What you're saying is, let those words be my words now. 
Let it be so in my own life. And here's the prayer. God, I'm a sinner. We're all sinners in this room. That's clear. And you as a righteous judge punished my sin on the cross of your only begotten son, Jesus the Christ, who tented as a human being just like us and yet never sinned, but took my punishment in its place. Died on the cross just like Scripture promised and three days later rose again just like Scripture promised and now offers me forgiveness for my sins, the payment for my debt, and a brand new resurrected life. One where your Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of me, in my tent with me, as a guarantee to, to constantly remind me that you are now preparing a place for me in heaven. And to that I say yes. As you start to show me in my life the temporariness of the things around me, make me an ambassador of the beautiful eternity you've now betrothed with me to. And I say yes, confessing Jesus as my Savior and as my Lord. Have me now. I belong to you. Jesus, in your name. And if you agree, I ask you to give a resounding Amen.